Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, we got through another week. Yay, us. It is Friday, January 13th. And I hope winter is uh, being kind to you so far and uh, that you're going to have a great weekend. And for those of you listening who have to work this weekend, you have my heartfelt sympathy, having been somebody who for at least half of her career, I worked weekends when I worked at the hospital and I worked weekends for a lot of my television tenure. So I get you. I I feel you. And I, I know that some people who work weekends on a regular basis get very testy about um, people like me making the assumption that everybody's got the weekend off to have fun and run errands. So whatever you're going to be doing this weekend, I hope you can find some fun. I hope you can find some joy. Okay. Um, let us start with what is going on pretty much as we speak. The City Club of Chicago is meeting Uh, They're having an event that sold out within minutes of being announced. It is a speech by mayoral contender Chewy Garcia on what his public safety plan would be. Um, Alice Yin is a political reporter with the Chicago Tribune, and she has been live tweeting some of what Chewy has been saying. Um, and what part of what his plan is. So uh, let me share with you some of the things that Alice Yin has been posting on social media. Representative Chewy Garcia's safety plan includes firing Superintendent David Brown, moving resources from citywide teams to patrols, filling administrative positions in the police with civilians and leaving patrols for sworn officers and designating mental health crises to civilian teams. Um, Responding to a question on the guaranteed basic income, because remember, Cook County President Tony Preckwinkle joined us. There is going to be kind of an experiment over the next few months Um, I think they had something like 3,000 or more applications for 500 slots of families who could get $500 a month guaranteed basic income to try to lift them out of poverty. Um, Well, when he, when Chewy Garcia at the City Club today was asked about guaranteed basic income, um, he made a a sort of a slam against Mayor Lightfoot, who had for a while she was talking up crypto. And he said, first of all, I would not invite Sam Bankman Freed to come to Chicago and open an office and make a contribution to the program. And then things fall apart, which is happening. Sam Bankman Freed is the guy who's the crypto guy who's now being accused of basically running a Ponzi scheme. As investors came in and gave him their money, he would pay off early investors. He also donated millions and millions of dollars to uh, politicians. He also put out a notice that he was going to be giving millions of dollars 
to uh, community efforts and to charities. I happen to know that because somebody that I know that's involved with an international charity, they made an application to him. They were like, hey, here's who we are. Here's what we do. We'd love to get some of that dough you say that you're going to be giving away. And uh, interestingly, they never heard anything back. Well, back when um, Sam Bankman Freed looked like some kind of boy wonder, all Lori Lightfoot wanted him to come to Chicago and open an office. Of course, um, of all the things you can blame her for, I don't think making an in- when you've got somebody who everybody thinks is some kind of genius and seems to be making money hand over fist and they say they want to get involved in community involvement. And as mayor, you say, hey, come here, you know. You know, should there have been more vetting? Maybe. But a lot of people got sucked in by this guy. Anyway, anyway, I digress. Uh, Going back um, to the safety plan, um, one of the things that um, that um, Mr. Garcia said today, uh, again, a slam at Mayor Lori Lightfoot about how she has. Not always gotten along with everybody, you know, like uh, talking about safety. He said, have you seen the finger pointing between the mayor and the state's attorney, the mayor and the courts, the mayor and the governor? And then he went on to talk about how he uh, brought people together. Uh, He also uh, made some um, comments about the ad that the mayor released recently that people and he pointed out the fact that in the mayor's most recent campaign ad on safety, as she referred to people who sort of didn't think Chicago was doing a good job as haters. And um, he said, instead of moving us forward, she calls us haters. Go look at the ad haters. That's what she calls everyone who doesn't think the city is doing all Um, And she is doing all she can to make us safe. She's not serious. I'm serious. I want to play for you right now the ad that he is talking about. Listen to this. You wouldn't know it by watching the news or listening to the haters. But on crime, Mayor Lightfoot's got a plan. She's putting more police on the streets and getting more guns off them. When it comes to new strategies, new technology, Lightfoot's invested more than any mayor. Those are facts. Anyone that says there are simple solutions is lying. We didn't get here overnight, and we have a long way to go. But Lightfoot won't quit until we're the safest big city in America. Catch that first line, uh, you know, haters for the city of Chicago, haters going to hate. That's what he was referring to in his speech today. He was also Critical of uh, safety initiatives that the police are undertaking, like the CAPS program, that's the community policing program. Um, He said that he thinks that they are vestiges, mere vestiges of what they once were under uh, the current mayor. He also uh, criticized her for um, not moving faster to take money that was available to the city of Chicago under the American Rescue Plan and put that into anti-violence programs. Um, We will 
if Alice uh, posts anything new and exciting, the speech is over now. But if there's anything that she uh, adds to the work that she's been doing on social media, and I'm sure she'll write something very interesting for the Chicago Tribune's uh, digital edition to be out soon. We will bring that to you. But, you know, I mean, uh, Chewy's got some serious momentum. I was kind of skeptical because he got into the race so very late, uh, missing out on a lot of endorsements. You know, the problem with fundraising is that, you know, you've got big ticket donors. But, you know, when a donor makes a commitment to a candidate and then somebody who maybe they would have liked better gets into the race later, Generally, those donors don't switch. They say, you know, I'm really sorry if you'd have been in the race uh, earlier, I would have supported you. But now I've committed to this other person and I'm not going to change. I've seen that happen before. And um, but considering the fact that he got in the race late, a lot of the endorsements for like the union endorsements have gone to Brandon Johnson them don't really know um, who the big ticket donors behind him are. Um, Chuy Garcia at this moment in time seems to be one of, if not the front runner to be the next mayor. You know, I've said before that my prediction is that February 28th, when the people of the city of Chicago go to take this vote, I um, I would not be surprised if somebody comes away with, what is it, 50% plus one vote to, so that there is no runoff. That would not surprise me. I think that this field is going to shake out. <clears throat> and I think, you know, we're going to have a handful of serious contenders and whether or not there are seven or eight or nine names on the ballot. The most recent surveys show that Lori and Paul Vallis and Chewy and Brandon Johnson seem to be leading the pack. It wouldn't surprise me if that's the way it stays. Uh, but we'll keep an eye on this, and we will bring you information as it happens. There's a lot to talk about today. It is Friday. You know we always spend at the very least the first hour of the show talking about the news of the day, the news of the week. And opening up the phone lines, so let's get to that right now. 773-763-9278-773-763-9278. You can text us on that line as well. I try to keep an eye on the texts that are coming in. And our text line, I want you to know, is sponsored. It's Friday. Sponsored by Camp Kupagani. You can find out more about them at multiculturalcamp.com. So let's uh, take a break and get to it right after this. Around the town, Chicago, with Al Besloff. The people in the audience were mostly, I would say, people in their 50s. Okay. And uh, there were some young people. And at intermission, I asked this one this young kid, I think he was probably 19 or 20, what he felt. He said, this was cool. All these old people are wrapped up in one. <laughs> 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 it's amazing when you get the young person's perspective. You know. Well, it's a lot different. Uh, well, and, 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 you know, they don't know half the things that we know. Sunday afternoons at 2 on WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. 
This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are doing what we do every Friday. We are talking about the news of the day and the news of the week. (laughs) And we are opening up the phone lines and the texting lines, 773-763-9278. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, what news story struck you this week? Hi, Joan. This isn't my idea, but a, a gentleman called the time earlier this week, and he said, you know, the library does a better job of keeping track of things than this archive department does. And I have to second that because over the last three years, if my, I, if my library book is overdue, I get a phone call, an email, and a letter. I made a mistake of letting a book to a sibling. He couldn't find it. I, I thought I had to get a lawyer. My point <laughs> is this archive, this archive department must have, we can only, our imagination can run wild. How many classified communiques go through the White House every day mm-hmm. and, uh, and what ones are going to be put into the archives or why they are put into the archives. All that information I think should be uh, uh, put out into the public so we understand uh, where the information is going. It's public information, Joan. So I mean, either an airdrop or something's wrong somewhere because from 217 and then suddenly, oh, my God, we I think we've got some classified documents that Biden left with. We've got to retrieve those. Whatever yeah. this is, this is not, this does not, uh, this is not up to snuff. We've got to get this thing more on the ball. Uh, it does seem like it's a, considering that, you know, we're not talking about just the return of a book, but rather, classified and top secret documents it does kind of seem that you know people might be want to be a little bit more careful with this stuff i think the only defense is that i think the archives basically want they want everything they want every piece of paper they want every note they want everything and yet um obviously some of these Things are sent to presidential centers, presidential libraries, where you, if you want to write a book about Obama, you know, you go to the Obama Presidential Center and you can look through uh, papers and things that they wrote. So how they decide what the the person gets to keep, because it isn't just the question of whether or not something's classified. There are other kinds of documents that belong in the archives. And I don't, I do know that sometimes representatives from the archives will go to the White House, particularly when um, the administration is turning over, that they will send people to the White House to collect documents. But think of it over a four year term, you know, um, every note, every agenda, every phone log, I mean, the volume of material is staggering. And particularly, you know, I think that my guess is that there has been, to some degree, a bit of an honor system in place that, you know, whether you're George Bush or Barack Obama or Joe Biden or Donald Trump, uh, somebody figures that the boxes of documents you have packed up to take with you, either to put in storage to end up in your presidential center or just to take with you to your office in Mar-a-Lago, 
that I think there's a, an understanding that somebody will vet those documents. Clearly, this is a weak spot. You know, clearly, uh, yeah. And as I said on the on the radio earlier this week, right now, if I were George Bush or Barack Obama, I'd be hiring lawyers to, and I would say, your job for the next month is to go through every box of uh, papers, whether they're in storage, whether they're at my presidential center, wherever, and make sure there's nothing that's labeled top secret or classified. Um, because uh, obviously you, you, you Joe did, Biden didn't mean to. Yeah, give that individual a promotion though immediately. You know, make sure you make fifteen. Yeah, I agree, Joe. You're exactly right. Anyway, I, it's just you know, it's it's hard to kind of you know you imagine if you're in a cage of thousands and thousands of the sensitive material that goes through a White House. But you're exactly right. They got that's the weak spot. But anyway, John, you have a great show. Thanks a million, John. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the call. And, you know, uh, you know, Republicans, Republicans, of course, are like going, well, you know, look, Biden did the same thing Trump did. And it's not the same thing at all. First of all, Biden didn't take Trump was found to have at least so far more than 300 classified documents. The lawyers who signed off on this information that it was all being given over basically signed false False documents. The lawyers in June wrote a letter that was like, you've got everything. We can attest to it. And then there's a raid in August and 300 more classified documents. So he took hundreds of documents. He hid them. He lied about them. And so did his lawyers. You know, um, President Biden has tried to be as cooperative. Even the Justice Department has said that, you know, there has been complete cooperation on the part of President Biden and his lawyers in retrieving and making sure that no more of these documents are out there. As a matter of fact, when um, President Biden gave his last press conference what, afterwards, one of the reporters asked him about um, the investigation into these classified docs. Here was what President Biden said then. As I said earlier this week, people know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. I also said we're cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's review. As part of that process, my lawyers reviewed other places where documents in my, uh, of, from my time as vice president were stored, and they finished the review last night. They discovered a small number of documents of classified markings and storage areas and file cabinets in my home and my in my 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 personal library. This was done in the case of the Biden Penn. This was done in the case of the Biden Penn Center. The Department of Justice was immediately as was done. The Department of Justice was immediately notified and the lawyers arranged for the Department of Justice to take possession of the document. So there you have it. President Biden, you know, talking about his complete cooperation on this issue. Let's go back to the phone lines. Earl from Hyde Park wants to continue this discussion thread. Hey, Earl, how are you? Thanks for calling in today. Hi. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. What I want to say is we've got a problem that's more than just the, the person involved. 
And I think the problem is basically seriously that the Republican Party wants to shrink the government until it's small enough to fit into a bathtub and then drown it. Uh, (laughs) What what I'm trying to say there is this. They are trying to starve all of these government agencies and uh, Uh minimize all of the people that are in these departments to cut costs and maybe to like with the um, IRS uh, to protect their big donors by not having enough people to go through exactly extensive uh, uh, IRS uh, filings and stuff. Uh, so we have uh, a situation that's full of uh, contradictions, and I don't know how we get around that because now they have the the House of Representatives. And they're going to be nitpicky and puny and uh, political as anything that they can be to try to cover up what's going on with the president, what's going on with the, uh, uh, you know, the IRS, every other government agency. You know, they even cut the CDC and sent the, uh, the, uh, the scientists that were working there. Uh, all of them did that to our research departments and stuff. So we've really got a bad a bad situation here because the government funded a whole lot of programs that the private industry was able to take the ball and run with. One was the space industry, you know, and then the resistors and transistors that came out of it, the LED lights and all this other stuff. And, uh, Joan, I just don't know how we get uh, a government that we deserve. I yeah. really don't, because we're at odd ends. You know what I'm saying? With the, the, yeah. the, 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 and the Republican Earl, you make such a good point, because look what the Republicans have done in the short time they've been in office. Have they tried to do anything that benefits The average American? No, you're exactly right. They've gone after the FBI. They've gone after the IRS. Some people have said that especially like with Jim Jordan and this committee, he wants the weaponization of the government. They're they're saying the Republicans want to create an atmosphere of fear, just like in the McCarthy era, where, you know, the McCarthy, uh, Joseph McCarthy went on a big witch hunt about communism and were you a communist and holding these big hearings and make making people come in and defend the fact that they're not communists. It created a horrible atmosphere where people were afraid Some people say that seems to be what the Republican Party is trying to do right now. Go after the FBI. Go after the IRS. Create an atmosphere where people are afraid to investigate, to stand up for what's right. I, um, I think that you're, you're right. We've got to keep a big eye on this. It's really important. We need to take a break. We've got tons more calls. We're going to get to them right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Your lawn drive home just got even easier. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Now weeknights from 5 to 7 p.m. on WCPT 820. 
Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Friday, and every Friday we open up the phone lines and talk about the news of the day and the news of the week. We have been talking about uh, the situation of classified documents being found at a few locations, uh, classified documents from uh, President Biden's time as vice president and how those are being handled. Let's go to the phone lines. Helen is calling in from Huntley, Illinois. Hey, Helen, thanks for joining the conversation today. Hi, Joan. Um, I haven't heard, may have been reported, but I haven't heard. How is it they found these things in his office from when he was vice president six years later? Was nobody um, he had there was he had a vice presidential office at the Penn Center and they were I guess they were getting ready to close it down. So there were lawyers at the Penn Center going through all of the vice presidential materials. And they're the first okay. ones that came across a couple of things that were classified. You know, they notified the White House. They notified the inspector general's office okay. and all I, the people I couldn't understand why that. Uh, office has been empty for six years. So now that explains it. It's, yeah, they're cleaning it out. Okay. Well, I I hope that they figured this out. And, of course, one thing is not like the other. No, one thing is definitely not like the other. There's even the DOJ said that the Biden administration, President Biden himself, have been completely cooperative. And frankly, once those lawyers who were were shutting down that office, once they found those documents, um, he sent out lawyers to look everywhere where there were documents in storage. And that's why, you know, they found uh, two other locations where I think one of them, they found two things. And in, in some sort of locked storage, they found one document. Um, and, you know, that was that was Joe Biden's doing. And it wasn't this uh, lying. It wasn't sending lawyers to lie for him. Uh, it wasn't being yeah, obstructive. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's uh, it's not the problem that arises. It's how you handle it or don't handle it that becomes the bigger issue. Okay. Thank you very much for the clarification. Thanks, Helen. Thanks for the call. Uh, Paul from Seattle also wants to continue our discussion about the documents. Hey, Paul, how are you doing today? Oh, hi, Joan. Oh, yes. Let let me talk a little bit about how one thing is not like the other. Okay. So, first of all, let's look at it this way. Um, The misplacement of administrative documents. It takes place all the time. I'm, I'm guessing it's, it's, and it's really not the office holder's fault. It, they're not the ones who go get the book from the shelf and have to put it back. It's the staffers who dropped the ball and didn't get it back to the national archives. And I was, by the way, prepared to uh, think the same thing in Trump's situation. Here's the difference, though. Okay, is and and these things, these administrative. Snafus happen where there's a misplacement of documents, and they go. They happen all the time without fanfare, and they would have ha- it would have happened without fanfare in Donald Trump's case. Even the search and seizure at Mar-a-Lago, we would have never known about, except for Donald J. Trump going public and acting like a little whiny victim punk and say, they say she's my house, they say she's that, 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 and this is illegal, and these were my documents. <laughs> okay, first, that's how we knew about it, but here's the crusher, Joan. Here's the crusher. 
And it was Donald J. Trump who first initiated litigation in federal court to what? To have one of his hand-picked federal judges <laughs> declare all of those documents that were seized as evidence. Yeah. As evidence by appointing an evidence master. And I don't know why. I mean, there's no evidence until there's legal action and then it's entered into the evidentiary process where you have lawyers say, oh, no, no, Your Honor, I don't think this should be. In. And once once that's all done and you have, okay, here's the evidence that the prosecution wants to submit, then the, the court says, I think I need an evidence master. But she went right ahead and said, the whole kit and caboodle is evidence against you, Donald. Why did she didn't say, you want me to what? And then, you see, because... They don't understand the first law of physics and the, and the first law of litigation are the same, which is every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So if you're going to declare that all of the evidence that the FBI just sees, all of these documents are evidence, you can't then say it's evidence. And by the way, DOJ, you can't look at it. Mm-hmm. We didn't even. We didn't yeah. Even well, that's, you know, the basic difference boils down to the fact that when this arose for President Biden, he was like, let's look for more. Let's make sure everything that happens should happen. And when it was Donald Trump, it was like, I don't have any documents. There's no documents. Don't look here. As a matter of fact, here's a signed legal document that says I don't have any documents. Oh, you found documents? Well, I'm going to court because you shouldn't get those. Do- I mean, every step of the way, he was obstructionist. If when they've made the first request, if he'd have just said, ah, you know what, I don't have the personnel, you send somebody over to look through all this stuff, and if there's anything I shouldn't have, you take it. I mean, it's just, it's a basic, it's a facet of his personality. He simply can't go easy on anything. No, it's all, he because he has to be the victim, he's the victim of everything, he's a punk. Exactly. Really antithetical to to conservative politics that uh, they're always talking about, oh, oh, all people of color are victims and liberals are always victims. Uh, Donald Trump is the biggest punk victim I've ever heard of. But yeah, he's the one who wanted it, who had it all declared as evidence. And to by having the judge appoint an evidence master, that's right, right then and there. That's it. It's all evidence against you before there's even been legal action taken. And then to this day, he still refuses to certify that all documents in his possession have been uh, have been relinquished to the national he refuses to this day to actually certify that he's given up all the documents yep absolutely absolutely he is obstructionist in every way possible and and you're right it plays into his whole idea of donald trump as victim um which uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem to me to be an attitude that is serving him. But what do I know, Paul? Really? <laughs> yeah. you know? yeah. Thank you for the call. Uh, appreciate it. Um, let's let's go back to the phone lines. Our good friend Bobby is calling in from Indiana. Hey, Bobby, how are you? Oh, OK. Uh, how about Jerry? Do we still have Jerry, Lady B? Okay, Jerry from Richton Park. Hey, Jerry, you're on uh, with me, and uh, thanks for giving us a call today. Okay, Joe. Two things. One, uh, with the president, uh, Biden, as uh, as opposed to uh, what's his name, uh, Trump. Joe Joe Biden showed you what a, a president is supposed to do in a situation like that. 
this other man is he's he's not he we won't get into that <laughs> yeah what i what i could but really he showed you what a what a real president is supposed to do you you find that you turn it over and it's over but this man right. was doing something i believe devilish but we won't get into it because it's speculation let the department of justice go in and do what they do yep. i wanted to talk to you about the uh upcoming election in chicago and um what I want to say is this. I'm a former president of the union there. As a matter of fact, I, I was the president of the Chicago Transit Authority, the rapid transit workers for a long time. And uh, what I hear, not just in Chicago, but everywhere, everybody tells you what they are going to do. And what people need to do is look at their background and find out what they've done. So nobody can lie on them. And nobody can lie on anybody. Just go and look in the background and, t- and find out what these people do. Do your due diligence because it's just that important. Your vote is like gold. So yes. find out exactly what everybody is going to do. I'm looking at some of the commercials. I'm like, yeah, right. Uh, Chewy, I know Chewy very well. He knows me. But, you know, when you say, well, my thing as far as um, the, the crime, I'm going to fire the guy, the, the commander. What has that got to do with really, you know, curtailing the truck crime? There's a lot of things you can do, like going into the neighborhood, setting up things in the neighborhood, talking to the people, uh, training your people not to shoot African-Americans just because they are African-Americans. Uh, that happens a lot. And train your police to go out and do their job. Now, there are great policemen out there, and there are some bums out there. Some policemen, police, if you go and look for yourself, Look at the Tribune. Uh, look it up. The Chicago police are at the bottom when it comes to solving crimes. Not because they're incompetent, but because they just don't want to do it. And the, the well, more- also, too, a big problem with that is to solve crimes, usually you need people to talk to you. And what I've heard over and over again, particularly from folks on the south and west sides, is they don't feel comfortable giving information to the police. They're not sure the police can protect them. They're more afraid of retaliation than than they are of of anything that law enforcement can bring. And, you know, when there's a shooting, you know, it's the people who were in the area who give the police the information that allow them to solve the crime. And if those people aren't talking... It becomes a really, really difficult problem. That's true. That's true. But I lived, I grew up in Chicago and I know what happened. I know how I was treated when I was a kid in Chicago. That's way back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know how I was treated when I was a kid and I'm not putting it all on the police. I'm not excusing them either. When you shoot a kid 16 times walking down the street with a three inch knife and other crimes, break in on a woman that has no clothes on and treat her like she's, you know, some kind of cow or animal, you know, and you tell me, I want to talk to you. I'm going to talk to you. But now when you're walking down, when police are walking down the street in certain neighborhoods and in the white area, it's hello, officer friendly. How are you doing? Mm -hmm. This is the way it is. But we don't get that. When you walk down our street, we're like, oh, my God, here's for me. Hey, what does he want? He want to shoot. Yep. I don't care. You know, this is the type of thing. That's what I mean about you got to go in there. Now, what I do, and I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get this in. I work with 
scholarship, infinite scholars. We give out scholarships to kids. This is where you go to try to help the neighborhood. We're we're going to be working with the police. We're going in and we're going to be talking to the commander, one of the commanders over there. We've already talked. We're going to do this. Kids from uh, 5th, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, it's called a promise program. We're going to grab them, get them, and give them an affidavit to sign and their parent saying that they're going to keep their grades up. They won't get into trouble, and they're going to give a 95% attendance. If you do that through high school, you got an automatic scholarship. We work with the colleges, and the colleges have worked with us on that, and this is where we are. They're, and they're, it's working in St. Louis and in uh, a couple of the other, uh, Detroit, and some of the other cities, because we have uh, infinite scholars all around the country. I'm really the co-chairman. But this is what I want to do, we're going to do in Chicago. We started doing it uh, a, little, a little while back with a commander, but the commander got in trouble. <laughs> I think he was doing something like taking his grandmother's or mother's social security or something. Anyway, he got fired. But uh, he was a good guy, though. But uh, this is what we're doing. What we do, you got to go inside. And I know another uh, young group that has a symphony of change. They go in and put the music back into the schools again. These are young. These young people. Uh, they're entertainers. I know the young lady. Young lady is. Uh, she worked for uh, Joffrey Ballet. She was a dancer, and her husband is. Uh, a, Bonafide musicians called T.O. Williams. He got a lot of hits out. They go into the school, schools and they put these kids, give these kids opportunity to join the band, uh, do dance. They they do a lot. And this is what you got to do. Got to have those extracurricular activities. You know, Joan, uh, you're not as old as I am, but when you, we we came up, <laughs> you had other things. I know you're not as old as I am. When you we came up, we had opportunities to. Join the band after school. Mm-hmm. We could yep. do other things. We weren't trying to shoot people after school. You know. Yeah. These things I hear took it out <clears> I know. And there have been a lot of things yeah. that have been neglected that hopefully people are start yeah. going to start paying attention to. Uh, Jerry, I really am so glad you called. We have to get to a commercial break. We are going to be right back with more calls right after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away, 773-763-9278. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive returns right now on WCPT 820. It is Friday. We open up the phone lines and find out what news of the day you think is important. Let's go back to the phone lines. Dave's calling in from Hoffman Estates. Hello, Dave. Hey, Joan. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I, the other night, or the other, when you had uh, Professor Ostro over, I was going uh-huh. to... But there, there was no calls. I was going to mention to him. Did he hear that story that that they had these captured members of the Wagner Group claimed disobedient troops, you know, prisoners who were sent to the front lines in Ukraine, have been publicly executed for not charging into enemy fire. And then another captured uh, inmate, former inmate, described 
many of those recruited prisoners as completely insane. Ugh. And that there and that there's a group of a squadron of liquidators that deal with the troops considered to be problematic, kind of like the Nazis Einsatzgruppe and one, you know that. Mm-hmm. And you know, seeing a Wagner group trying to emulate them. You know, I didn't know if. Well, I don't know about the the Wagner Wagner group, but I do know when when this war really was just kind of getting underway, there were reports from just regular Russian army uh, guys who were captured who said that they didn't want to be there. They had been told to pack. They told they were told they were freeing Ukraine from Nazis, and when they found that was not what they were doing. They were told that if they didn't continue fighting, they would be shot. That if they tried to retreat, they would be shot. So it doesn't surprise me a bit. Uh, what you're saying is is probably is probably quite true. There are certainly seems to be, you know, not everybody because uh, you know war always really does attract the crazies. But, you know, a lot of the people who get there and discover that they're not fighting for a noble cause have been told, you know, you fight or either we shoot you or we're going to go after your family back in Russia. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, they were, like you said, they were lied to even at the beginning. Yep. They were first told it was going to be a training mission and. Yeah, some of them were told it was a training mission. Some of them told they were being sent over there to fight Nazis. They were told a lot of different lies. Yeah, and that um, those some of those that they recruited now they 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 come and uh, snatch them up, and two days later they're out at the front line. You know, have no training whatsoever. And I, hey, Joe, and I. Try that with the text. I don't know if it came through because I wasn't sure if I'd get through on that about like with the president. I had heard I was telling um, Hartman earlier that it was either MSNBC or CNN. I had heard they had claimed that that first box they got either out the closet or whatever of these documents that supposedly they had gotten them around August, and but they held on to them until after the November midterms. Um, I haven't read about that yet. Um, I haven't seen any, any, but, you know, I, I, I must admit that while I've read a few articles on the documents, I haven't done like a deep dive where I spend like an hour reading everything I can find. Um, so yeah. I can't, I, I have not read that yet. It doesn't mean that it did or didn't happen. I'll look into that, Dave. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thank okay. you so much. Be well. You too. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. Um, Eduardo is calling in from the southwest side. Eduardo, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, Joan, uh, looking forward to the uh, long weekend here. And speaking of that, that's the reason I called, because I noticed there's quite a significant amount of uh, events going on. And people are kind of ignoring the fact that, and this this has happened with 9-11, and unfortunately it's happened even with covid even though like places like LA and New York are going to like yellow alerts. So people seem to forget, you know, importance of days why people are not working. Like for example, yeah. Monday, Martin Luther King day. Yeah. It's people miss that point. So I, I'm hoping that uh, parents are going to be able to take their uh, young people, regardless of where they come from, the suburbs or the city and take them to a museum or a library or something, even a field trip. Mm-hmm. 
And well, you know, it's interesting that you say this, Eduardo, because actually. Uh, starting at the top of the three o'clock hour, we're going to be talking with Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson from Push Excel, and uh, she's going to tell us about the Martin Luther King breakfast, and also she's going to tell us about a project that they are working on that has to do with homeless kids. So hopefully we will be able to, you know, focus some people's attention. And, and I'm really glad you have Monday off. I personally don't, but I know it's, it's going to make me happy knowing that you're home, um, doing something important and enjoying the day. Thanks for the call, Eduardo. I appreciate it. Thank you, Joan. Yeah. Have a good weekend. You too. Let's go back to the phone lines. Ron is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Ron. Yes. About the, uh, Classified documents that are found. Mm-hmm. Um, why can't uh, President Biden just have them declassified? That'd be a <laughs> story. I, I mean, uh, it, can't the president? Uh, like what? Yeah. Well, technically, yes, the president can declassify anything. But when a document is found and it's labeled top secret or eyes only, um, you know. That would be that's exactly what Donald Trump said. And that's that's been his argument. All these papers belong to me and anything that might say it's classified. Well, I'm the I was the president and I can declare it not classified. But, um, you know, it's not really an argument that holds a lot of water, particularly when you're out of office and these documents have been found. Now, as I understand it, the ones the the handful of documents from when President Biden was vice president. Those documents were found, but I believe each and every one of them was found in a locked area or a locked cabinet, a locked closet, as opposed to, you know, just sort of spread out over the desk. And Biden's been very cooperative. You know, he hasn't said, oh, wait a minute, you can't come after those. I declassify them. You know, he hasn't been obstructionist at all. Um, and I do know the president has the power to declassify but um i think when that happens a document is supposed to be stamped with that the document how it's labeled is supposed to reflect its level of classification and if something is declassified i think the document is supposed to reflect that so that's kind of where it gets a little bit a little bit sticky i don't think it does all amount to anything until this Republicans want to move on to something else to argue about. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, they've got to, they can't focus on the Biden documents for too long because they have to start complaining about Democrats who want to take our gas stoves away from us <laughs> or whatever else the horror of the day is. Thanks so much for the call. And, um, you know, earlier this week, I spoke with Michael Hawthorne, who is the Chicago Tribune environmental and public health reporter. And toward the end of our conversation, I said, you know, what's what should we be looking for? What are going to be the big environmental issues of 2023? And he said, well, more and more information is coming out about how gas stoves that are in so many homes really add a lot to pollution Apparently, a lot of gas stoves leak a little bit. And also, when we cook on our gas stoves, apparently just that little bit of ignition um, creates particulate matter. There are studies that show that people who have gas stoves, um, those households 
tend to be more likely to have people and children with asthma in them. And there's beginning to be a concern that somehow the gas stove particulate is adding to the problem, let alone possibly even creating the problem. Well, we talked about this for a few minutes on Tuesday. And I don't know if you've been Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, suddenly this has blown up. Sadly, just as they did with COVID vaccines and trying to make something that should be public health political, the Republican Party is now doing this. It's like, oh, don't vote Democratic. They want to take your gas stoves away. Don't come for my gas stove. Like somehow Democrats are going to show up with a little uh, with a little dolly and walk in and strap your gas stove to the dolly and run away with it. It is completely absurd. And another evidence of, you know what, let the data come in. Let the scientists look at this. Gas stove's a problem. Gas stove's not a problem. Maybe there's some device that can be developed to retrofit our gas stoves with to make this not a problem. But right now, all of that is in danger because it has been decided that this is going to be a political cudgel that we are going to use against Democrats. Democrats hate your gas stoves. Not like Republicans. We want you to have your gas stoves. I mean, it's insane. It's absurd. It's stupid. But it's here. It's here. And we're going to have to live through it. Um, let's take a break for news. And as I said, we're going to talk to um, Operation Push about some of the stuff that's going on. This Monday is Martin Luther King Day. We'll have more right after this. Take Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820. Listen in Chicago on 820 AM or stream us live on WCPT 820.com. The TuneIn radio app or tell Alexa or Google to play WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. President Biden will be attending a Martin Luther King breakfast this Monday. This Monday, January 16th, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, a day um, that a lot of people have off from work and a day that we are encouraged to reflect on equity and equality in this country, a day when we are encouraged to try to do a good deed. Operation Push Excel, of course, this is a big day for them. They always want to focus attention on it and focus attention on some of the good works that are ongoing and that hopefully will get um, more steam behind them in the near future. Executive Director of Push Excel, Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson, joins us now uh, to talk about some of this. Thank you so much for being here, uh, Reverend Wilson. Thank you so much for having me. I love being on your show. (laughs) Well, we love having you. So let's talk about Monday and some of the things that are going on. 
Well, we're so excited about this year because we're going to place a heavy focus on our programs, particularly our STEM program. I mean, we're, we have children that we're going to train them in not just playing uh, video games, but designing their own games, building esports teams so they can understand the business of esports as well as uh, how to design their own esports competitions and they can have teams that play their friends in, in elementary and high school. We, we want to teach our children the business of technology as well as the proper use of the technology, robotics, uh, and how robots are being used to do all kinds of things. Look at teaching them artificial intelligence and uh, you see these electric cars. We're going to have our young people designing electric uh, vehicles and other things. How are you? How are you getting the word out about this? How are you? Are you doing this in conjunction with schools or with churches or community centers? How is this program going to work? Well, it's going to be after school or what we do at uh, Push Excel at Rainbow Push headquarters. We have what we call a Saturday school. We ask parents bring your children on Saturday so they can learn uh, some of their history that they're not being taught in, in public schools or any schools uh, across the country in any detail. And we also uh, teach them uh, financial literacy, something that should start with children at a minimum in third grade so that they begin to learn how to budget and, and what it costs uh, to live on the planet Earth. Yeah. And, th- and then we teach them um, the soft skills of communication using our oratorical program where we teach them not only to speak well, but also to write speeches. Because if they're going to work, as you know, in corporate America, and many of them say they want to work in the media, they have to learn to be more articulate. They can't use these uh, letters that only a few of them know what the letters stand for. And if you're over 50, you have no idea. (laughs) You know, it's interesting that that you focus, that's one of your areas of focus, um, a few months ago, I read Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and mm-hmm. he said that what really sort of started him on his path, because he said he'd been kind of a lackadaisical student, but there was a Martin Luther King speech contest, and he was encouraged to write something up and enter it, and he did and he won, and that was sort of set him on a path to um, really thinking about these issues in a way that, you know, he never had before. Something like this can really change a life. That's right. And the other thing, we, we're honoring what we call presenting our Impact Educators Award. There's so many people doing creative things in the field of education that we don't know about who are honoring uh, chance light education for the programs they have with children that uh, many count out, children with disabilities, children who are autistic, and uh, children who've been uh, removed from regular school and assigned to these alternative schools. We give them another ray of hope, uh, chance light does. And so you're going to see some of the, uh, the young people that have uh, learned how to do digital music, which was a way to get them reengaged in uh, pursuing an education. We're going to honor uh, the youngest mayor in America, Jalen uh, 
Mayor Jalen from uh, Arkansas, a small town in Arkansas, but that's a big deal at 18 years old. He's elected to office, which means he can inspire a whole generation of young people to not just say, I'm not going to vote, but people can vote for you. We're honoring um, Shirley Ralph for her work with Abbott Elementary, but also her work across the years as a consistent uh, actress, but an advocate for for social justice and change. And and so we are excited about our honorees. And then we have, uh, I'm not naming everyone, but then we have uh, Jonathan Luther Jackson, who is going to be our keynote speaker. And it's so interesting that uh, Dr. King uh, was there at the hospital when Jonathan was born. So it's just a full circle of... Wow. uh, Yeah. That's amazing. That kind of history, that kind of connection, Um, you know, because, you know, he's not a figure who lived two or three hundred years ago. He is, for a lot of the people of the Reverend Jesse Jackson, he is and was a contemporary. And so Reverend Jackson certainly will open the breakfast. And I mean, can you imagine someone that is not just reading a history book about Dr. King, but he was part of the history that Dr. King was was doing, he was here when uh, Dr. King, and part of the times when Dr. King came to Chicago. And many churches that now uh, say how wonderful Dr. King was had closed their buildings to mm-hmm. Dr. King. So it's, uh, it's a really exciting moment for us to celebrate the legacy of Dr. King in education. And we're looking to get uh, young people and others to look at what is your blueprint for life? And and so we're saying to young people, old people, all people, the life blueprint that Dr. King talked about, yes, you need to pursue an education, go as far as you're able to go. And But it's more than uh, graduated from educational institutions. It also means you have to have some understanding of your civic responsibility, some connection to a community engagement, giving back to the community that gave you uh, support gave you a life and so forth. So we want to teach our children the whole, so that they understand how the uh, the government is structured, how it works, and why it is every young person, once they turn eighteen, they should automatically be engaged in voting, registered. They should be automatically registered, and then they should just vote and know why they're voting, who they're voting for, and the power of these offices that exist. Uh, we want young people to understand the business of education, the economics of education, and how you can become a supplier to these educational institutions. That's what we want young people to understand. And certainly there's a moral compass, so we want to teach some conflict resolution and how to relate to uh, crises without violence. Yeah, I want to talk to you more about that. We need to take a real quick break. I'm speaking with the executive director of Push Excel, Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson. This Monday is the day we celebrate Martin Luther King. Push Excel has a big uh, celebration planned at the Marriott Marquis Chicago on South Prairie Avenue. It's a breakfast, starts about 8 a.m. Uh, it is... Um, it's a very high-profile event. Cheryl Lee Ralph, as, uh, the, as the Reverend mentioned, 
from Abbott Elementary is going to be there. Judge Greg Mathis is going to be there. We're going to talk more about some of the programs. There's an interesting focus on student homelessness that we're going to talk about when we come right back after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Monday, January 16th, is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Some people have it off. It is a federal holiday. Um, But it is also a day that isn't just, oh, it's great, we have a day off, you know, let's sleep in and, you know, run some errands. It is a day that carries a lot of meaning. It is a day when we are asked to try to figure out maybe how we can make our communities and our world a better place. Maybe there's one thing we can do. I am joined by the executive director of Push Excel, Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson. There's going to be a big breakfast at the Marriott Marquis in Chicago, Monday, 8 a.m., a star-studded event to bring more attention to some of the work that is ongoing and needs to and needs to get done in the very near future. One of the programs that I would like to to talk about now is um, an effort to try to focus on student homelessness. Dr. Wilson, talk about that. One of the things that I find a very troubling uh Teachers and everyone expects uh, all students to do homework and to be uh, focused when they arrive at school every day, whether it's elementary, high school, or even uh, college. And yet, if, if a child is homeless, uh, they don't have a place to go at night with a, with a light and a, and a desk to study. They don't have a kitchen table to study on. They don't have the, the infrastructure that every child should have to uh, to complete school assignments. If I'm riding an L at night with my parents, as many students do in Chicago, uh, there's something like 3,000 families on one L a train. I dare say I'm not trying to study. And when I get to school, I'm, I'm very uh, frustrated because I see children who have so much more than I do. And as a child, I don't know why am I different. What have I done to deserve this fight? If I'm a child that's living in one of the 10 cities across America, how do, how do you think I feel when the winter break comes, other children go visit uh, grandparents or they just stay home for the winter break? My home is the street. My home is going from place to place. And so we find that many homeless students both at the collegiate level and at uh, elementary and high school level, they don't uh, they don't they don't do well in school. They have difficulty uh, completing coursework, and so finally, uh, the many states are requiring or implementing the Every uh, Student Success Act, which now requires school districts and schools to report on graduation and achievement rates of homeless students. 
we see some colleges are now realizing when you close the campus for the winter or the spring, homeless children have nowhere to go. So you're Mm. closing down their meals. You're closing down uh, shelter, safe shelter. I was, uh, during COVID was when it really struck me what this really means because many homeless children didn't have, where are you going to, how do you how do you do your work remotely when you're homeless? You don't have any electricity unless you go to a Starbucks and don't get kicked out, or you go to another place that they have Wi-Fi uh, during the day. And you know if you're not spending any money, how do you negotiate this when you're on free and reduced lunch every day? It's, it's troubling to me, and I think that it's something that all of our elected officials at the city, county, state, and federal level must address. They, we can't cut Title I. We need to be expanding. Look at homelessness. And we figure out, as a nation, uh, what do we do for the children? We can figure out how to incarcerate them, get to, um, create some crimes, but we cannot figure out how to feed them when they're simply homeless. Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, and very timely. Heidi um, Stevens, who writes a weekly column for the Tribune, her most recent column, she interviewed a guy who is very successful now, but who started life as a child of a homeless family in New York. And he talks about how, you know, when he felt like when, when his when he, I don't know if it was just a mom or um, if there were other kids, but he said that he felt when he was a homeless child, he felt like he was invisible, that nobody yeah. saw him. Nobody saw that they were dirty and in need of medical attention and in need of food. It was like he said it was like we didn't exist. And I don't know how he overcame it, but it was just it breaks your heart. Well, and you think of Viola Davis. We know her now. We see her now in all of her uh, movies and programs. But when she was a child, she she was barefoot at times. She might as well have been homeless because she didn't have running water every time, all the time. Uh, When I look at now Governor Westmore, there's a young man in New York with the same identical name. They, They grew up in pretty much the same community. And Westmore, the governor, was able to matriculate and go to college and do all kinds of great things. The other Westmore didn't have the same opportunities, didn't have the same things that uh, Governor Westmore had. And so it's not fair to punish children when they've done nothing wrong, when all they've done is be born to uh, in a situation of poverty that they have no control over, and they have no ability to immediately remove themselves from the situation. What would you like to see happen, either um, in the city of Chicago or the state of Illinois? Is there a legislator who's working on this? Is there a, a program that you would like to see be better funded? Well, I think that uh, one of the things that we should do, if we can create juvenile detention centers for children 
who we consider to be um, contrary to the way society should operate, there must be uh, juvenile facilities for children who are homeless where they get uh, a constant daily a place to stay that's safe and clean. And that means converting uh, some of these uh, apartment buildings that are vacant, CHA buildings that are vacant, or empty school buildings to uh, what I consider to be uh, condos, homeless condos. We can make we can build tiny homes for homeless families because we've got to begin to address it. We are judged by how we treat the least of these, and this homelessness is growing. It has expanded out as, as a result of COVID, but it's gone so so far beyond our imagination. And I, I just think the schools need to consider <laughs> when they shut down for these breaks, colleges included. What are they doing to keep facilities and food available for students who are homeless? We can't just keep going like we're, we're uh, everybody is doing well and we're just shutting down and we're going to clean things up. That's not fair. Mm-hmm. Are there certain schools? I know that um, one of my friend's uh, daughters for a while was doing a project where they would collect like um like for for parents that traveled for work they would collect all the little shampoos and you know all the little soaps from and they would put together these baskets so that if somebody got to a place whether it was a shelter or somebody else's house or couch surfing or whatever they had a toiletries to be able to use and there were certain schools where they dropped these things off are there certain schools that we could focus on and maybe raise funds for or or help out in some way well i think if you're looking at elementary and high schools yes every school has a homeless population uh, of 20 percent or more of that school's total population and so we first of all need to do some serious uh, statistics and data on the level of homelessness, how many are living from place to place so they're not completely on the street, and then how many uh, have no place that they can stay more than a day. And uh, and then we have to talk to all of the uh, developers and landlords. We can just, it's not a Section 8, it is homeless, period. And, and have people meet that criteria and then begin to deal with the unhoused. Mm-hmm. That's the latest term. And it requires the media to do some investigation uh, of communities. Where, where are the people? They are invisible to us because we drive past them or ride past them as if they're not there. And then on holidays, we say, oh, it's Thanksgiving. I'll go throw some food at them. Mm-hmm. Go to these ten cities. They tell you, please don't bring us any food. What are we gonna do with it? We can't eat this much Thanksgiving and Christmas, but all year long, I'm out here. So that's one thing. And I think colleges, as much money as they're charging for tuition and room and board, there has to be a set aside on all these campuses 
for homeless students, and that means they should have 12 months of coverage of a place to stay and food to eat around the clock. And then those of uh, those who have been blessed with uh, resources, you need to take 10%, just a tithe of what you have, to, to devote to homelessness. Because if, if you are homeless, getting food from the food depository doesn't help you because you have no place to fix it. You have no place to refrigerate it. You're homeless. You're unhoused. And so I would like the media to just begin to look at it and expose it for what it is. It's yeah. a travesty. And we, America is better than this. We you would hope. How? Well, if um, somebody, if the people listening to us would like to uh, join this breakfast you have scheduled, this star-studded breakfast that you're going to be doing this Monday at 8 a.m., how do they get more information, uh, Dr. Wilson? Go to rainbowpush.org and purchase a ticket. The, the, and the money is primarily used to uh, fund our scholarship, the Orly Simon Scholarship, and she's a lady from Mississippi who's taught school in Chicago and, don- and donated her time to helping children uh, get ready for college, helping children uh, learn to speak. That's why the uh, oratorical competition is the Orly Saunders Oratorical Society. So we want people that right now, if they could just donate. Some of you are not going to do any of the work. You don't have the time, the talent, or anything. We need you to support Push Itself, the 501c3 tax-exempt organization. Make your donations to Push Itself because the donation you make may may save a child. Well, Dr. Wilson, I really appreciate you being here and talking about this. It's really important. Good luck. I hope you have a great turnout on Monday. I'm speaking with uh, Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson, who is uh, leading Push Excel. There's going to be a big Martin Luther King breakfast uh, on Monday morning. Go to Rainbow Push and you can get information. You can make a donation. You can buy a ticket. Uh, Dr. Wilson, thank you again for your time. Thank you for your time. And I hope that many who are interested in solving this problem, addressing this issue of homeless students, if you would give me a call at Push. 773-383-7277. I'm forming a committee on how we can address student homelessness. Wonderful. Well, uh, we'll help you publicize that. <laughs> we are going to take a break now. We are going to be back with more politics right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. There's new information. Explosive new information. It's how every day starts. Need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning starting at 6 on WCPT820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As we happily reported in this lame duck session, both the House and the State Senate here in Illinois passed the bill that is going to ban assault weapons in the state of Illinois. Bob Morgan from Deerfield was uh, driving it home and brought it home for the state of Illinois. And he joins us now. Congratulations, Bob. You must be so pleased. Thanks, Joan. Uh, it, 
it still feels uh, surreal. It took uh, six months plus about 30 years of legislators trying to make this happen to uh, reduce some of the gun violence we have in Illinois. So it feels it feels great. Are you exhausted? Uh, yes. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I think everyone was pretty tired from lame duck session, but um, I I think the combination of just how personal this was for me and for my community, plus the the last week of just uh, legislative negotiations, it, it was um, it was very heartening to get it across the finish line. I have to tell you, I got a little nervous because at one point I was reading that there were some uh, Democratic s- state senators who were concerned about this idea that somehow even the people who were grandfathered in um, would have to register their weapons, that the police would need to know where these weapons were and in whose possession. And I thought to myself, oh, no, because then, of course, Chris Welch said, you know what, this is a really important part of this bill. And, you know, we're we're not going to we're not going to move forward without this particular provision, because otherwise the bill is just way too watered down. And I thought, oh, God, no. Oh, no, this is going to be the stumbling block that nobody can get over. How did you guys negotiate past that? There was never a scenario where the House could just unilaterally pull together legislation like this. So the the negotiations with the Senate were always going to be an element. uh, But it certainly uh, is a little harrowing there at at one point, of course. Uh, As you noted, you know, the negotiations were tense. There were a lot of things going on, not just this legislation, but, of course, the reproductive health bill um, and a number of other things between the House and the Senate with not a lot of time. Uh, so luckily, uh, you know, Senate President Harmon was very committed to getting this done. Um, and uh, to be fair, I, I think the Illinois Senate had not spent the same kind of time internally negotiating and working on this bill the way the House had. Uh, so it just took a little time to get everyone there. Mm-hmm. So um, after it was passed, I kind of went through because there was there were several House bills. I mean, we were talking about it like it was all one big thing, but there were several individual bills that dealt with different aspects of this whole idea of increasing gun safety. Would you mind once again for our listeners walking us through some of the provisions that are now law in the state of Illinois? Of course. And I, I think of this conceptually as about five parts. So the first two, ones that don't get a lot of attention, one that extends our red flag laws. So in domestic situations, domestic violence situations, our red flag laws right now can only be up to six months. Um, but our law and the law of the past uh, now extends those to up to a year in situations where somebody was a, a threat to themselves or others and you want to remove the gun from the home. Uh, so that that's terrific and very important. Uh, we also had a significant element in there dealing with gun trafficking. Um, Illinois, but uh, lesser degree, but much more so at the federal level, uh, federal ATF for decades has been prevented, prohibited the hamstrung from going after gun trafficking across state lines. And so now we're, we really reformed uh, Illinois state police to create as part of their core mission of existence, going after illegal gun trafficking across state lines, which is going to be really, really helpful as we see this massive flow of illegal weapons coming into Illinois from Indiana and Missouri. So those are two elements that we're not hearing a lot about, but are very, very important. 
The last three are uh, banning the sale of uh, different types of, of uh, gun-related items. So the first one, rapid-fire devices, uh, switches or buttons, as they're called, turning ordinary handguns into fully automatic weapons. We're finding I'd, more and more in Chicago. I'm, I'm, I don't want to completely derail your train of thought, no, but no, I, no. I read that, and I had never heard of something called a switch or a button. Can I, I understand bump stocks and things like that, but... What are these switches or buttons? What do they look like, and what exactly do they do? Yeah, and, uh, you know, we're familiar with bump stocks in part because of what happened in Las Vegas. And yeah. An assault weapon that's a semi-automatic weapon, a semi-automatic rifle, and a fully automatic rifle. Um, so that's, that's what the bump stock attachment is, and that's one of the reasons why we heard so much about that. Um, and, in fact, the Trump administration, Donald Trump of all people, banned that at the federal level. Um, and so the other the other part of it, though, is these attachments are going to an ordinary handgun and their attachments, sometimes plastic, sometimes metal, where they attach and clip onto a handgun and turn it into a single pull shot of a semi-automatic into a fully automatic weapon. Uh, and unfortunately, they're becoming much easier to get and, and particularly Cook County and city of Chicago police are finding these being used more and more often in uh, gun crimes where they're just pulling the trigger once and it's leaving this incredible carnage of just dozens of bystanders being shot. Uh, you know, it really is a, a, a horrible thing. It's already banned at the federal level, but not in state law. And the reason that matters is, is because we almost never prosecute gun crimes at the federal level, just now how the federal judiciary and, and U.S. attorneys are set up. So at the state level, we, can, we can't charge it uh, because there were no state crimes until this law was just passed last week. I I thought, uh, well, you said the there is a federal law, but it's not usually prosecuted because doesn't doesn't federal law on an issue like this supersede state law? Well, so in order to use a federal crime, we would need to refer this case up to the U.S. Attorney's oh, Office and they would I have see. to take it on. Um, and that's just it, it's very, very rare. Um, so as these individual gun crimes one by one are, or take, are taking place, Almost always, the gun crime is prosecuted in the state court, in the circuit court. And because up until this week, when, when the governor signed this law, there was no criminal penalty there, it was never it was never an additional element. Um, so this is an additional charge that we're going to be able to bring in and hopefully um, you know save lives as this is being used to really commit horrible, horrible um, gun gun uh, deaths and also injuries to again more often than not bystanders, people who are just walking past. So those are the first three elements, and then the other two are the ones we're hearing a lot about. Uh, it's banning the sale of, of semi-automatic weapons and also banning the sale of high-capacity magazines. Uh, so this legislation, and that was one bill. All of that was in one bill. Uh, so there are a lot of elements here and a lot of things that are going to get at the root of the gun violence we're seeing. When something like this comes up for a vote... I'd like you to give us, pull the curtain back a little bit on how the state legislature operates. If somebody has a concern about the bill, does somebody like you, as one of the people pushing it, do you sit down with them one-on-one? Are there committee meetings or other kinds of get-togethers? How do you get people who may have concerns on board? How does that work, Bob? It is all of those things. Uh, we had three public hearings on this legislation with probably about uh, 14 hours or so of total testimony and, and questions 
bipartisan discussions between Democrats and Republicans on our uh, Judiciary Criminal Committee. So we did that in December. Um, my working group that I chaired, the House Firearm Safety and Reform Working Group, spent uh, collectively hundreds and hundreds of hours over the last six months meeting, listening to stakeholders, drafting this legislation, debating amongst ourselves. Uh, and then once the legislation was introduced on December 1st, I heard from everybody. So I was having law enforcement discussions, discussions with Republicans, uh, discussions with my colleagues in the House and the Senate, uh, and a whole bunch of other stakeholders to see what we could do to make this a better bill. Um, so we were negotiating this language, and the language changed up until that final moment where it passed the Senate, and then uh, the House adopted the exact language. I'm speaking with State Representative Bob Morgan. He represents the 58th District. He's from the Deerfield area, and he was instrumental in getting Illinois to be one of the leaders in the nation on banning assault weapons and keeping us safe from gun violence in other ways. We are going to take a real quick break, and we're going to be back with State Representative Morgan right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by State Representative Bob Morgan. He was instrumental in getting the new assault weapons ban passed in the state of Illinois. Um, Bob, is this all in effect? Is this the law of the land right now? Has the governor signed it? The governor signed the bill on the same day that the House passed it. It was this Tuesday. Um, so the, the pieces that are in place immediately right now, it banned the sale of these semi-automatic weapons and the high-capacity magazines immediately. It was around 8 o'clock at night, and a, a message was sent out to all gun retailers around the state that as of this moment, they should stop selling these weapons and high-capacity magazines. There's been some talk about... Um, the way to curb the problem of mass violence would be to require a liability insurance. Uh, you know, like if you if you buy a gun, you have to take out a liability insurance policy and that if the politicians can't get this done, maybe the insurance companies and the amounts of money they would have to start paying out might get it done. Do you think that's a viable option? I do. We spent a lot of time looking at this and talking about different ways to achieve this. Um, There is no state that so far has required insurance for gun ownership. Um, The city of San Jose in California just implemented this idea. uh, And part of the problem is there just does not currently exist any kind of insurance market to do it. It doesn't mean it's impossible. In fact, I think it would be a great idea. So you can look in this coming session, you should expect me to introduce some legislation that will try and move us in that direction to require um, and what that would look like of requiring insurance for gun ownership. Mm -hmm. Um, Very interesting. What other communities are you looking at who you feel are leading the way in trying to keep us safe? Oh, well, there, there's so much to do. I mean, this is this is not an easy problem. This is a complicated problem. It, it's complex 
the reasons for gun violence are multifaceted and it requires us to really think of it this way. Um, so mental health funding is something I think really, generally speaking, uh, Democrats and Republicans would agree uh, is a piece of all this. And so we need to increase our funding for mental health. We've started to do that. There's a lot more that we have to do. Uh, trauma-related services. You know, trauma begets trauma. And those that have experienced gun violence are exponentially more likely to be involved with it again in the future. So making sure we have the resources for communities, not just like Highland Park, but all over the state that experience gun violence, that they have that opportunity to get that, those services, behavioral therapy and trauma-related counseling, so that they can continue on with their lives and really recover from these traumatic experiences. And there, there's so many other things that need to happen. But, uh, you know, I, I think that um, we will continue down this path going into this next session. Um, speaking of traumatic experiences, for the listeners who didn't hear you last time you were on with me, you and your family were at the 4th of July parade in Highland Park this last year. Would you mind talking about that? Sure. Um, for the last six months, uh, this has been, in fact, this moment has really been uh, what's been on my mind since uh, my wife and, and children were at the parade. We were about two blocks away. And uh, after um, the uh, the shots were fired and, and people ran away and I got my family to a safe spot, I ran to the scene um, and saw a number of the victims and helped um, you know carry away a, a two-year-old girl whose dress was covered in blood because both of her parents had been shot. So this, this was an incredibly, extraordinarily personal issue for me, not just from the policy perspective, but just because our community was and continues to hurt and be in so much pain from what has happened. Um, so to see and to be able to pass legislation like this that I think really um, reflects the, the ways in which our community wanted to make sure no other community goes through what we did, uh, it, it really is... is um, it, it gives some purpose to the pain that we've all gone through. How is your family recovering? How are your kids dealing with that day? Uh, fortunately, they're they're okay. Um, my my now seven year old and five year old don't really have uh, any understanding of what happened. Um, we were far enough away where they they didn't see anything, um, and they have had colleagues and, and other students in school talk about it. But for the most part, they they are thankfully kind of uh, separate from all this. Um, my wife, um, you know, certainly it impacted both of us in a lot of different ways, uh, and we know a, a lot of people who were either injured or who were right there to witness what happened. Yeah, that's. You know, I mean, the North Shore is a, a relatively big area, but it's but it's very much like a small town because everybody knows somebody who was there during the shooting, before the shooting, right after the shooting. Um, and um, I mean, there was, you know, there have been politicians who've said they'll they're they're never going to be a part of a, a parade again. Um, because, you know, it would probably give them flashbacks. Um, how do we move forward? And, you know, this is great. What the state of Illinois done is has done is great. It would be wonderful if the states around us also passed this kind of legislation, though that seems like um, a slim hope at this point. How do we move forward? What else do we need to do? Well, I, I 
think there's been such a push and effort from people from North suburbs that were at the parade to try and make these changes at the federal level. Uh, and there's so we, we got pretty close. Um, you know, in some ways, you look at what happened over the summer where President Biden signed the Safer Communities Act, the first major piece of gun safety legislation in 30 years. Uh, some great things in there. And so the question is whether or not we can continue that kind of progress. Um, of course, with the Republicans taking control of the House, I think that that is probably less likely. Uh, unfortunately, and just uh, the the need to continue to push forward so we can start to peel back some of this gun violence that has just become ubiquitous in society. School shootings, grocery stores, religious institutions, almost everyone has been touched or their community has been touched by gun violence. It uh, unfortunately has just become something we are all numb to. So hopefully we continue to kind of push back against this normalcy and, and refuse to accept the fact that this is the way of life that we need to live. Well, you know, uh, years ago when my daughter was still in school, she was going to do a study abroad program. And somebody was like, somebody said to me, aren't you worried that, you know, she won't be safe? And I looked at them and I said, tell me where it is safe. Tell me where you can go to be sure you're going to be safe because it isn't Walmart and it isn't church and it isn't the grocery store. You know, where is safe these days? It, uh, it, I mean, just speaking for myself, it, I, I certainly am much more aware of my surroundings. And, and I, as I uh, practice my Jewish faith, when I go to synagogue, I, I'm aware of the ever-present um, security that we have when we have uh, a Sabbath uh, Shabbat service. So, you know, this is a real issue for so many people. Um and again, there are communities every day, every day there's gun violence, uh, which is unfathomable to me and to most of us. Um, but it, it is real uh, for some of our neighbors. And just a reminder of just how much more we, we have to do. Yeah. Um, this has been an incredible accomplishment. What else? What other issues uh, would you like to see the state legislature take up? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm going to take a couple of days off here, but uh, <laughs> that I think that uh, you know there's there's a lot that needs to to happen. My background is in healthcare, and I I would love to see some more progress on healthcare availability, reducing the cost of health insurance and healthcare. Uh, you know, the healthcare inequities that we have and inequality in access is something that has been a, a mission of mine for a long time, and I'm I'm hopeful going into my third term now in the legislature. I'm going to keep banging the drum on that, trying to make some more progress. Um, do you have um, other political aspirations? Anything else you'd like to do personally? Uh, you know, honestly, I feel really fortunate at the moment. Um, there was a, uh, you mentioned this at the beginning of our, our discussion. There were any number of reasons that this legislation could have fallen apart. And the fact that it got done and we ter- we signed this into law a few days ago, um, I feel very fortunate and, and don't take that for granted. So I, I look forward to continuing my role in the House and trying to help others uh, who are working on some even bigger legislation, because there's a lot to do and a lot of ways that we have to help people. I um, I know that you were a driving force behind all of this new gun legislation, but you didn't do it by yourself. Who are some of the other people you'd like to give credit to for helping this get over and get voted on? Oh, thank you for asking that. Uh, our working group 
collectively in the house. Um, in particular, uh, LaShawn Ford, Maura Hershauer, Barbara Hernandez, or some of the other state reps, uh, Kathy Willis and Denise Wayne Stonebeck, both of whom were uh, were lame ducks during this working group, but who both spent decades working on gun safety legislation. Um, you know, State Representative uh, Jay Hoffman from Southern Illinois helped shape a better bill. There were a lot of legislators who put their their ink on this, and really, it wouldn't have gotten done had it not been for Speaker Welch. Uh, this, really, you mentioned that period of time with uh, that that moment with the Senate. You know, had it not been Speaker Welch and Governor Pritzker really saying this has to get done and it's going to get done now, you know, I really I, I don't know that it would have happened. I got to tell you, uh, I was really surprised because, you know, a lot of times politicians want to hedge their bets because they don't want to seem to be, you know, all in on something that might fail. And I was I when when it looked like there were some Senate Democrats who were waffling on this and the fact that J.B. Pritzker came out and was like, no, 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 this is getting done. We are getting this done. And I thought to myself, you know, he was sticking his neck out for something that was not a certainty at that point. And I, I have to tell you, I, I really admired that. Do you think that helped? Uh, it definitely helped. And, and again, to your question, there are decades of legislators who have pushed on legislation like this. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point out my, my, my colleague, who is my state senator, Julie Morrison, who has been working on this legislation and was the lead on this long before the Highland Park shooting. And so there, there's a long list of legislators, House and Senate, who have been pushing for something like this. And uh, it really would not have happened, but for all the other people that had come before me and the people that, you know, one of the, the, the bases of legislation is you're just one person. You can do nothing by yourself. You mm-hmm. need to build a consensus of colleagues in the House and in the Senate um, and it really required having that kind of coalition of people who, like you said, said, right now, this is going to get done. We're going to get this across the finish line. Uh, so I, I have I could spend an hour thanking people. But <laughs> those people I mentioned really get a lot of the credit. Well, we all kind of knew how things operated when Mike Madigan was the speaker. It was Mr. Madigan. What do you think about this bill? I like it. I don't like it. It goes. It doesn't go. Um, it was not the most democratic process, but it was clear. Um, how do things work with Speaker Welch? Ooh, just speaking for the House, we are we are a very member-driven legislature in the House. And so when we have a consensus, Speaker, Speaker Welch makes sure that that's, that's what the House does. I, I think there, I joined four years ago, and, and at that point, that was, Really, it was the last term of Speaker Madigan in that last two years. And even by then, I think the House was already changing. But under, under Speaker Welch, it's, it's been remarkable because if the, the will of the majority of the, of the legislature in the House wants to do something, Speaker Welch does everything in his power to make sure that happens. Mm-hmm. And it just it's refreshing. It's, I think, builds confidence that it reflects the will of, of the state because we're legislators from all over. And we're representing a lot of different communities. So the speaker has done a tremendous job of building an operation where we we are able to reflect the state and whatever the state wants to do. Uh, and he works to fulfill that. And so I, I'm I'm pretty grateful for his leadership, frankly, because it it helps when we have to leave our families and leave our community to go down to Springfield. 
you know that you're working for something that reflects the broader consensus and the greater good, not just an insider deal or one person's perspective. It really reflects the majority. So until you have to go back to Springfield, what are you going to do to relax and have a little bit of fun? <laughs> Uh, my my children uh, just got home from school a couple of minutes ago and uh, look forward to uh, spending some good time with the family and trying to reflect on what just happened. And like you asked earlier, think about what I'm going to be able to do in this next General Assembly. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, take a little time, put your feet up, have a bowl of ice cream. You have earned it, my friend. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate you having me on and all the support. And uh, there, there's certainly, again, a lot more work to do, but this this will save lives. And uh, a lot of people help make this happen. And, and thanks to all of them. And as you continue to do that work and write new bills, I certainly hope you'll give me a yell and say, you know what, I'd really like to talk about this new bill. It's got some uh, really interesting ideas in it, and I think it'll be a good thing for Illinois. And I will say, yes, when are you free, State Representative Bob Morgan? When can we get you back on the radio? Okay, deal? Uh, Absolutely. And and while I have you, just one more thing, I I really, again, would be remiss if I didn't add that this also would not have happened, but for the advocates who who are volunteers who weren't getting paid, who would come down to Springfield, who'd call their legislators, many of whom experienced gun violence, not just in Highland Park, but around the state, and use their personal stories as the fuel to get this done. So uh, I promise we'll be back. I'll be back soon to talk more about other legislation. But thanks for having me on, and I hope everyone has a great weekend. Thank you so much. That's State Representative Bob Morgan represents Illinois' 58th district. We're going to take a break for news and be back with more after this. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Starting January 29th and running through April 23rd, there is going to be a new exhibit at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. It's called the Negro Motorist Green Book. For those of you who (laughs) didn't see the film of the same name, a similar name anyway. Um, the Green Book was a travel guide that was created in the 1930s by African Americans for African Americans so they knew as they traveled where they would be welcomed and what places, towns, areas, businesses they also needed to avoid because they were not welcomed there. Um, there is so much that is going to be in this exhibit, but you may not realize that Chicago, there were 180 businesses in Chicago that were in the Green Book, a lot of them in the Bronzeville area. Um, but this is, um, an exhibit that is of national importance and also local significance. There's going to be a lot of components to this exhibit, which, as I said, runs from January 29th through April 23rd. 
at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. And uh, one of the panelists, they're going to be doing an event uh, early in February. There's going to be a panel discussion. And one of the panelists joins us now, award-winning documentary filmmaker Yoruba Richin, uh, who did an Emmy-nominated film called The Green Book, A Guide to Freedom, joins us now. And she will be uh, on a panel February 2nd as part of this big exhibit. Yoruba, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Tell us about this film you put together. So uh, the Green Book, as you mentioned, was a a travel guide for African-Americans to navigate uh, the United States. It was um, safely. It was produced, first produced in 1936, all the way up to about 1965. And it listed places that black people could go uh, and be served safely, stay safely, uh, you know, stay over safely. Um, and then it really expanded. It expanded to places that black people could vacation uh, that were safe. Very, very soon, um, you know, after the first publication, it became uh, a, a travel guide, um, and a vacation guide. And uh, it's a fascinating piece of history that many of us do, do not know. Um, the Green Book, but the Green Book was widely populated, uh, was widely, you know, in, in many homes um, and passed from, you know, amongst family members. And um, it makes sense that Chicago had, you know, a, a great number of, of Green Book places. In your film, The Green Book Guide to Freedom, you use some archival footage. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah. We use uh, all archival footage, basically, to um, chart the, uh, you know, the beginnings of the Green Book to when uh, it ceased publication in the 60s. And we visit different, in the film, we visit different uh, places that um, obviously we couldn't do, you know, every place, but we picked uh, various places that, um, you know, were significant in the book and significant in history as well. Um, the Green Book ceased publication after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, uh, which, you know, basically integrated many places. And so um, one of the sort of you know, unintended consequences is that a lot of black businesses were, um, you know, closed after after that. So in the film, we look at various places. We look at um, we look at a, a vacation spot that was, you know, a real um, hub for for the black middle class called Idlewild uh, in Michigan, um, and where you had the great singers and performers come through. Um, and uh, we go there, we go to Idlewild in the film, using both archival footage and talking to some people who are still there, who remember that, that those times during the 50s. Um, we visit the Gaston Hotel, in Alabama, which at time at one point was the um, the most famous uh, hotel for Black people, and it's where uh, Dr. King stayed when he uh, when he and uh, his 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 co um, activists um, put, uh, worked on segregate, desegregating Alabama uh, and and Birmingham the the Birmingham. Uh, 
the Birmingham, you know, movement. So the, we visit many places that were significant historically uh, and that really tell the story of those 30 some odd years of uh, when the Green Book was being published. Do you have any information or I don't know if it's a part of your film on any of the businesses or locations uh, from Chicago that were in the Green Book? You know, we don't have Chicago uh, in particularly in the book, but the wonderful thing is that you can actually go online in uh, and go to the Schomburg uh, website. Uh, but if you think if you just Google Green Book, all the books are online and you can look and see uh, where and it's, you know, they go by city and, and by state and you can look it up and see um, where, you know, what, what public what uh, businesses were listed. Does uh, does your film bring a special focus on women in the civil rights movement? Yes, we um, it brings a, a special focus on women businesses. One of the things that we found is that uh, women were um, so there were so many businesses by women that were uh, that owned by women that were in the in the um, the green book, and, and so we look at. Um, we look at a motel in South Carolina that was owned by uh, a uh, prominent black, black businesswoman um, who then became one of the first uh, – What she integrated um, the university in South Carolina um, and was a, a force in, um, in civil rights in, in the state. We look at um, – we tell the story of another business um, – a hotel and and uh, run by a black businesswoman in uh, Missouri, which was uh, 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 one of the, these places where the great stayed at, uh, you know, that, where the performers stayed at, who um, were not allowed to stay at the white business places. So we really look at you know how women were essential to uh, to these businesses and essential to the uh, black entrepreneurship. And you talk about how uh, the Green Book largely went away in the mid-60s with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, because we have to remember that the Green Book existed not just because here's a place where you'll be safe, but there were laws. I mean, there were there were laws. There were communities that had up signs, you know, what so-called sundown towns. And the law was behind this. The law supported this. It wasn't just, yes. oh, by the way, here's some recommendations. It was like, no, here's where you have to go. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of hard to believe, but, you know, black people have experienced uh, terror in this country since the you know time we were we were brought here. So these sundown towns existed um, and some, uh, right, explicitly had signs. Um, so we definitely, African-Americans definitely needed a guide that could tell us, um, you know, where to go that was safe. And arguably, we still we still do. Um, I don't. Yeah. I mean, a good friend of mine, a producer I worked with back in the days when I was in television, uh, Patricia Arnold, who um, is very active on social media. She also she's African-American. And oh, God, I don't know, maybe a year ago uh, she was posting about how she'd gone on vacation and the travel mm-hmm. company she used is it you know it has just like a regular name like you know travel incorporated but it is designed 
uh, to create vacations for black people, places where mm-hmm. they will feel comfortable. She was on a cruise that was geared toward black people. So, you know, mm-hmm. there are there are still um, there's still a need for this kind of guidance. I mean, it's it's something that you shake your head about. But, you know, Pat Arnold is, you know, really outspoken. She was like, hey, I did this. This is a great company. You know, if you're looking for a kind of vacation and you want to make sure that you feel right at home, this is a company yeah. you should use. Yep, absolutely. Um, and, you know, obviously the Internet has changed uh, how we, you know, communicate around these, uh, you know, around giving this information. But there are there are uh, websites, uh, you know, that focus on black businesses in cities to support black businesses, vacations, as you just uh, mentioned. So that kind of, you know, that kind of information is still needed and still wanted. We are uh, going to take a break. As I said to you at the beginning of this segment, at the Illinois Holocaust Museum, there is going to be a uh, a very special exhibit that opens January 29th. That is a Sunday and runs through April 23rd. It's called the Negro Motorist Green Book. The Illinois Holocaust Museum, of course, is in Skokie. It's over by Old Orchard Shopping Center. And on Thursday, February 2nd, there is going to be a panel. Our guest, Yoruba Richen, is going to be on that panel talking about her movie, uh, her Emmy-nominated film about the Green Book. We're going to continue this discussion right after a break. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I am joined by Yoruba Richin. You can hear her on the radio right now. You can also hear what she has to say February 2nd when she is going to be part of a panel at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. January 29th, they are beginning an exhibition called the Negro Motorist Green Book about a guide that existed from the 30s to the 60s that let African Americans know where they, what businesses they could use, what, what, um, hotels and inns they could stay at and, and be safe. Um, uh, before we move on, because I, I also I know this isn't part of this exhibit, but I do want to talk about your new project a little bit. So before we move off of this, is there anything about this film or about your participation in the panel discussion that you want to share with our listeners before we s- switch topics a little bit? Well, just that you're able to actually view the film, uh, if you're interested, on the Smithsonian Channel. Um, so it's streaming on the Smithsonian Channel, and it's called Green Book Guide to Freedom. Now, I want to talk to you about your other work, The Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks. Tell us about that. 
so this is the first feature documentary that has been made about uh, Rosa Parks, which is kind of incredible. And it really looks at her life, um, both before her life and her radical activism, both before and after the bus boycott. Um, it's based on a book called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks um, by Jean Theo Harris. And um, my director, my co-director, Joanna Hamilton and I uh, made the film um, and it's streaming on Peacock. Uh, it's on the, on the, the Peacock streamer. Um, That's NBC uh, streamer for people who don't recognize yes. Peacock. <laughs> That's right. And tell us what, you know, we said it's feature length. So where does it start with her life? What does it take us through? Yeah, so it really looks at the very beginnings of um, who uh, Rosa Parks was, you know, her earliest memories. And that we use her voice throughout the whole film. So we have archival footage that we use, uh, audio tapes that we're using, and we have uh, an actress reading her words as well. So she really takes us through her life, um, through uh, the early her early activism, uh with the NACP and with uh, investigating sexual violence of black women in the South uh, that she did in the 1940s uh, through the Montgomery bus boycott, uh, then how she was um, basically had to leave Montgomery uh, because of threats to her life and economic insecurity and ended up in uh, Detroit, went to Detroit where she had family and lived the rest of her life in Detroit, also part of the activist community. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Um, so her her and worked for John Conyers, Congressman Conyers, um, for, you know, until she died. So there was her, her life was so, uh, so full and big and has been reduced to, you know, the bus lady. And so this um, this film really upends that notion. You say that she continued to be an activist. To, uh, to what age was she still out there fighting the good fight? Well, she, you know, obviously as she got older, she uh, slowed down, yeah. as do we all. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, you know, she was out there, uh, you know, fighting for, you know, speaking against apartheid. Uh, she was at the Million Man March in the, in the early 90s. Um, she was... You know, she was she's always outspoken. It is especially appropriate, I think, um, that this exhibit at the Holocaust Museum is going to premiere the same month as um, as we honor Martin Luther King on that day. Um, what do you think people should think about or do this coming Monday? Oh, wow. Um, well, I think there's a myriad of things to do. I mean, you can educate yourself about the civil rights movement that is, you know, goes beyond just the narrative of King's I Have a Dream speech. Um, you know, even just focusing on Dr. King and the breadth of his activism and what he stood for and really understanding that. Um, and then go beyond uh, women who are in the civil rights mo- movement who rarely get their due. Um, there's so much you can just learn and educate yourself about. And then, of course, there's many, there are many activities that are happening, uh, looking speeches. I'm, I'm here in New York, um, talks, um, looking at, you know, sort of the legacy and where we are today. So, um, 
I think you can you could celebrate and honor Dr. King in in many ways, but um, uh, educating I think education about who he was and what the Black freedom struggle was and is uh, would be you know a key way to to honor him. You've done these two incredible films, The Green Book: Guide to Freedom and um, The Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks, and yet. As a, as I'm reading about the industry, you know, uh, Discovery, Time Warner, and HBO, a lot of these big uh, media organizations have announced that, in the interest of cost cutting, there they are going to be airing fewer and fewer documentaries, reality based shows. Are yeah. are you worried that in the future it'll be harder and harder to get these kinds of films made? Yeah, I mean, I think we are worried about that. Um, you know, I, I'm old enough at this point where I remember a time before I got into this business, before streaming, um, before the sort of, uh, you know, renaissance, the golden age of documentary filmmaking. And um, I remember it was very hard. There are very few places uh, to, you know, to fund and to, to air this kind of work, which I think we all agree is so important and has really become part of our, you know, I say entertainment, maybe edutainment yeah. <laughs> uh, habits. So it is worrisome um, for sure. But hopefully the, you know, the cat is out of the bag that people want to see documentaries. They want to watch documentaries. I teach, you know, um, at the, at a journalism school and young people, you know, that's what they're watching. Um, mm-hmm. They really are. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I went to school and an awfully long time ago and there was so much and it, you know, it's, it's not just back in the olden days. There's so much that isn't being taught right now. And a lot of my education about the history of this country has come from the fictional and documentary films that, that I've seen. And I, I have to believe that that's true of pretty much everybody. There's, you know, I wasn't taught about Rosa Parks when I was in school. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. People are getting um, their education and knowledge from from these from this work. What do you want uh, the people who come to see this Green Book exhibit at the Illinois Holocaust Museum? What would you like them to take away a thought or a feeling from after they after they visit here? Well, I think, again, you know, expanding their knowledge of what uh, the history is of this country. Um, you know, we can't do everything in these exhibits or in this these films, so hopefully people will go and learn more. Um, but to understand that, you know, the history is of this country when it comes to race, is not always pretty, um, and that's okay because we have to reckon with it. It's okay in terms of that's okay to know that because we have to reckon with it. Um, and, you know, if we don't reckon with it, then we're never going to make progress. So hopefully those kinds of things will, you know, will, will, they'll be thinking about. Well, don't, don't you know, Yoruba, uh, young people especially aren't supposed to be taught anything that might upset exactly. them. Yeah. You know, we don't want to upset yeah, exactly. them. We don't want them to feel bad about themselves. Yeah, that's right. So that's where we are. And, you know, obviously that needs to, to change. Yeah. Really, um, I, I 
I couldn't agree more. Toward that end, uh, in addition to seeing this exhibit at the Illinois Holocaust Museum, again, it opens on January 29th. The panel Yoruba's going to be on is February 2nd. But over and above what is in this exhibit, is there um, another film or a book that you would recommend that maybe we pick up or take a look at this Monday to be a little bit more thoughtful about the day? Um, besides the film, you're saying? Yes, besides besides your own work and besides what's going to be in this exhibit, was there some something you read in the last year that you thought was just amazing and you would like to share right now? Um, well, one thing I would say is uh, to take a look online of the Green Books, because you really can find, you know, what is in Chicago uh, specifically, and it might surprise you and be really, really interesting. Um, in terms of the, uh, I would recommend uh, Rosa Parks, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> As a, a, and not even if, you know, not necessarily the, the film, though, that'd be great if you, they watched, if you watch that, but also the book as well. The Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks. The film is on Peacock. The Green Book, A Guide to Freedom, can be picked up on the Smithsonian Channel. And if you would like to hear more of what Yoruba Rutchen has to say, show up February 2nd for the panel discussion at the Illinois Holocaust Museum. She will be there and she will be sharing her thoughts. Thank you so much, Yoruba. Uh, appreciate you taking the time to call with us today and... Um, um, tell your journalism students to keep on fighting the good fight. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Have a good weekend. You too. We are going to take a break. When we come back, um, President Biden, you know, um, had some classified docs found, just as tr- President Trump did. We're going to talk to former Watergate prosecutor Jill Wine Banks about that right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Tune into the Tom Hartman Radio Program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You may have heard about the horrific scandal that some lawyers found as they were cleaning out a vice presidential office, some documents that appear to be classified. Uh, President Biden, despite the fact that he is cooperating fully and not being obstructionist, is getting a lot of heat Donald Trump, of course, handled his um, classified documents a little bit differently. We wanted to uh, talk about this, what happened, why it happened, and maybe how the media is looking at it. Who better to do that than Jill Weinbanks, author of The Watergate Girl, MSNBC analyst, co-host of two podcasts, Sisters-in-Law and iGen Politics, um, she's a very busy person, and I am so thrilled that she was able to spend some time with us today. Jill Weinbanks. Jill, how are you? I'm excellent, Joan. It's so nice to be with you today. Well, I'm glad you could fit us into your busy schedule. So, speaking with your political lawyery hat on, 
talk about this. I mean, according to the Republicans, this is proof that uh, Donald Trump should in no way, shape or form face any kind of consequences for his actions with documents. Because, look, President Biden had some, too. Okay, let me start with there's one similarity, which is both of these presidents, one president, one former president, had documents in their possession outside of a skiff. That is not appropriate. That's when a skiff is one of those super secret rooms we see on right. television that's um, that is protected so that nobody can snoop on anything that's said in there. Exactly. It is a very secure room, and it's the only place that secret confidential documents should be seen. And I personally think we're going to have to change the rules about access to these documents and change it in a way that allows uh, no one to take them home with them or to leave the office. We need to have them numbered and checked out like you would in a library so that everybody knows. I mean, the Let me go to the differences between the Trump case and the Biden case. And one of those is that the National Archives did not even know that it was missing any documents in the case of the documents that Biden had. Now, number one, there's a teeny number of them. There is, it's not entirely clear, but the first batch had maybe 10 documents. 10. Whereas in the case of Donald Trump, we're talking about hundreds, more than 300 documents that were classified. So right there you have a big difference. The other big difference is that these documents were found by a people working for Biden, and they were immediately returned to the National Archives. That's the right thing to do. Whereas in the case of Donald Trump, They weren't found and voluntarily turned over. It ended up taking a subpoena and a search warrant to get them all back. And in the case of Trump, there was a affidavit from one of his lawyers saying, we have made a thorough search and there are no more. Well, that was not correct. They went in and made another search, they being the government, the FBI, and found many more boxes of documents. So the differences really outweigh the similarity of their both having documents. It doesn't, and I'm not um, uh, underestimating the importance of protecting national security information. Neither should have happened. One is an accident, it's a mistake. The other is a crime. And that's the difference between the two of them. Do you think right now that former President Obama and former President Bush are thinking to themselves, you know, maybe I ought to have some lawyers going through the documents that I boxed up and sent to my presidential library or this college campus. Um, do you think that's happening behind the scenes? I mean, because surely, I mean, we know with Donald Trump that whether it was ego or wanting to hang on to secrets, the feeling is that he knew he was taking stuff he shouldn't take. With Biden, we get the feeling that this was a mistake. I wonder if other former presidents are now thinking to themselves, oh, my gosh, you know, maybe I ought to have somebody check my boxes. I wonder I wonder about that. What do you think? Well, it's a great question. 
And it's so funny because I just recorded tomorrow's episode of hashtag sisters-in-law. And it is one of the comments that we made is that maybe this is a warning to all former presidents that they should go through their houses, any storage facilities they have, because it is much better to find it yourself than to have the government come in and do a search looking for it. Now, they can't come in and do a search unless there's probable cause to believe that you actually have documents. But we've seen two examples of mistakes, and I'm going to say two examples of mistakes, even though it may or may not have been a mistake in the case of, of Donald Trump. The important thing with Donald Trump is not that he removed it. It's that he refused to give them back once he knew he had them. (laughs) Once he was told they do not belong to you, these are government property, these are classified documents, you cannot keep them, they must be returned. He went, no, I don't care, I want them, they're mine. (laughs) That's a very different story than what's happening. But yeah, I seriously think you're right that if I were Bill Clinton, if I were George Bush, if I were um, any Al Gore, I mean, he was vice president, Mm -hmm. anybody, Cheney, they should all go through their files, and if they have it, let them return it. That's what national security requires. That's what the law requires. You're right. They should. Well, one of my callers earlier today said, well, why can't President Biden do what Donald Trump did? Just say, I'm now president. I declare them unclassified. So no issue. Well, because that's not how the system works, number one. Number two, They were classified and in an insecure location where someone might have seen them. And that means that they need to be assessed for, um, you know, determining if there was any harm to our national security. And the declassification process is a lot more complex than just thinking, I want them declassified, or even saying to a stranger or yourself, they're declassified. So that won't work. But um, again, it's it's reaction of a guilty mind of, no, I'm keeping them, you can't have them. That's very different than what's going on. I do think this just really, as I said before, shows the need to have better rules in place about how they are handled, whether even the President of the United States can have them outside of a skiff, whether the President can take them into his office, for example. Maybe that's one exception, the office. But he can't take them up to the residence. He certainly can't take them to his summer home or to his, you know, uh, permanent residence after he leaves office. Um, that's, that's all clear. Maybe the National Archives is the one who should pack up the office of the president and the vice president. Maybe it shouldn't be left, and, you know, to the hurried rush of packing up to move to a new place because you unexpectedly lost an election or even expectedly lost an election. Maybe someone else needs to be in charge of that. I like your idea of limiting where any kind of classified documents can be held or viewed, but how do you enforce that? I mean, if you've got a a president who abides by rules, that's one thing. You get another president like Donald Trump. Oh, I mean, oh, I'm not supposed to take these up to the residence. Well, who's going to stop me? I mean, you know, the butler, who's going to stop me, Jill? Unfortunately, you're right, unless we also add a rule that says that there is a censor put on it and that it can only be 
in a room where it doesn't set off the alarms and that if you walk out of a secure room, it sends off beeps and the Secret Service comes and takes it away from you and not the Secret Service that's protecting you with whom you have a good relationship, but someone else, some police, some military, something happens. Um, and I don't think any of these things were, you know, accidental removals. Uh, they were taken out. And so we need a better system of accountability. I mean, I've been in offices where there were 10 copies of something made, and each was numbered, and each was assigned to, you know, one of 10 belongs to person A. Person B gets two of 10. And at the end of the day, they go back to a central location, and if there's a numbered one missing, then that person is held accountable and responsible for whatever happens. So there needs to be some system put in place. I mean, you don't just walk out of a library. You sign out. You have, they have your name. They have your card. They have your phone number. And if you don't return it, you get fined. Well, in the case of national security, that's not enough. But that, that's more than what happens in national security cases. Jill, we need to, to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about the fact that um, people are now, some people, particularly people on the right, are now saying that because these documents were found in uh, President Biden's possession, that that means that no charges of any kind can be brought against Donald Trump for um, taking away classified documents. I'm talking to Jill Wine-Banks, author of The Watergate Girl. She uh, hosts a couple of podcasts. We are going to be right back after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Jill Weinbanks, author of The Watergate Girl, MSNBC analyst, co-host, sisters-in-law, and iGen Politics podcast. We're talking about this whole document controversy uh, and the people who are saying, well, now it's clear you can't go after Donald Trump uh, for doing this because President Biden did it as well. As a lawyer, what do you say to that argument, Jill? I say you go after both of them based on the individualized facts. The law is the same, but the facts are different. And you could have a different result for each of them. One may be prosecutable. What your listeners should know is that under the law about removing these documents, there have been no prosecutions where there isn't an additional fact. There either has to be something about there was an attempt to hurt the American uh, national security by selling the documents. There has to be some proof of intention. There has to be some obstruction of justice. One of those three things needs to be present before the Department of Justice has ever prosecuted. If you look at every prosecution, there were additional facts, not just the removal. Removal happens accidentally. It's careless, and that's wrong. No one should treat uh, classified information carelessly. And so that, that's bad. I'm not in any way uh, demeaning the importance of 
of protecting national security information. I'm just saying that mistakes get made. Not every mistake is a crime. And the difference between the Trump case and the Biden case is that Biden is like apples and Trump's are rotten apples. It isn't at all the same. It's completely different conduct. The context is different. If you find it yourself and you turn it over, that's one thing. If you have to take a subpoena, if you have to take a grand jury, if you have to take a search warrant, if you have a false affidavit saying there are no more documents when in fact there are, then you're guilty of something much worse than just removing the documents. And if you've been told these don't belong to you, they have to be returned to the government and you refuse, that's a different circumstance. And I found these, no one even knows they're missing. I could keep on holding on to them because nobody knows. I could burn them. But no, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to return them to where they belong. That's a different story. So I, I think it's very clear the public should understand that. But even if they don't, the special counsel appointed and the members of their team do understand that. And they will make their decision based not on politics, not based on silly arguments, but based on the law and the facts. So you're saying the idea of whether or not you cooperated or obstructed becomes very important in looking into these matters. Exactly. That is one of the key differentiating factors. It's something that makes whether you can or cannot prosecute this. Um, and in the history of prosecutions, there's always been some extra factor like that. Mm-hmm. Tell me, um, in the legal community, what's the thinking about Jack Wilson? Jack Wilson, of course, the special counsel looking into the whole situation um, of Trump for the DOJ. So Jack Smith, you mean? Oh, Jack Smith. I'm sorry. Yes, right. you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's Robert Hur is the one. Yeah, the other one. Now. Yeah. I, 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 I brain cramped. I must know a Jack Wilson because I keep trying to make this guy Jack Wilson. But um, Jack Smith, absolutely. There, there what? was a Wilson who was a defense lawyer in the Watergate case. But, <laughs> maybe, um, maybe. I don't know. I'm old enough to remember that. Um, right. And so, I, I, what I'm, I'm freezing on is his first name. What was his first name? But anyway, um, um, he seems to be a, a both... Both special counsels appear to be eminently qualified. Both are not Democrats. Um, Robert Hur, the newly appointed one, is very, very credentialed in the Republican uh, world. His, he was appointed U.S. attorney by um, Trump. He worked in the Department of Justice under Trump. He oversaw the Mueller investigation under Rod Rosenstein. And um, so he's, he's eminently positioned to be a neutral uh, determiner of guilt or innocence, and, as was Loesch, who, of course, as you know, is from the Chicago area. He was the U.S. attorney um, in, is the U.S. attorney in Chicago, but he is a Trump holdover. Mm-hmm. And so he made the initial determination. Um, that was an extra precaution that Merrick Garland took was saying, I'm not even deciding whether there's a criminal, uh, possible criminal case that needs to be investigated. I'm going to have a Republican 
make that decision. And so Loesch recommended that there was enough evidence to look for um, and to have an investigation done to pursue whether there is a criminal case involving uh, Biden. So once Loesch made that, then Merrick Garland picked her as the uh, special counsel to carry out that full investigation. Do you think that Merrick Garland picked these two Republicans um, for the same reason that the January 6th committee, when they did their public hearings, virtually all of the testimony and all of the information they talked about was all from Republican sources so that people can't say, oh, look at Merrick Garland. He's putting some Democrat in charge of this. Of course, they'll find Biden, you know, didn't do anything wrong. Um, Yes. I mean, there are different circumstances deciding a special counsel um, and whether or not um, that's that's one set of things. The evidence and the witnesses you choose are very different kind of issue, but both have the same consequences. Um, In terms of choosing the witnesses and using almost all Republicans, it means that no legitimate Republican can argue, well, this is all a political show. It's, you know, they're out to get him because the people who came in were not Democrats. They were people that were appointed by the president. And the same argument is true in in appointing um, the prosecutor, the special counsel. And while I know for sure that her is a Republican, I'm actually going on um, line as we talk to see if he was, um, if if that's also true of Jack Smith. I don't know if he's a Democrat or a Republican. Um, he's actually registered as an independent. So he's not a Republican, but he's not a Democrat. So I was correct when I said neither is a Democrat, but only one is a Republican. Um, But, yes, if you have a conflict of interest because you are a Democrat investigating the Democrat who appointed you, you want to not pick someone else who would be subject to the same accusation. You want someone who appears to be completely neutral uh, and that no one can argue had a political bias that led to an outcome. So I think that's what happened here. People, I don't know what the legal community says, but people talk about Jack Smith like he's really fierce and he's fearless. And if there is a prosecution to be made, by God, he's going to make it in the legal community. Is that your sense of Mr. Smith? Um, Yes, I mean, I I think so. And I I mean, there have been, um, you know, he's prosecuted a former president. It happened to be, you know, in the uh, Hague uh, for, you know, crimes against humanity. But it still means taking on a former president. Um, And he took on some very unpopular cases that he lost. I mean, so he has taken on cases that aren't slam dunks. Uh, Now, is that good or bad? I mean, no prosecutor wants to lose cases. And you want to be able to make a neutral decision about whether to bring a case based on you believe your witnesses, you believe that a jury will believe your witnesses, you believe you have adequate evidence of every element of the crime charged. Um, so if you end up losing a lot of cases, that's not that's not so good. Um, and But yes, I think he is well-respected and he is known to be someone who will 
And he has, in fact, as you've seen from the flurry of subpoenas, he's acted quickly and decisively. Um, He filed his own brief on Thanksgiving Day, basically, um, when he had been only appointed a few days before that. He's really going full steam ahead. Well, it'll be interesting. I hear he's fired off a lot of subpoenas. So um, hopefully we will... um well, you know what? You lawyers, we find out, the public, we find out when you're ready for us to find out. Until then, you keep everything close to the vest. Um, well, but it, because of the grand jury secrecy. Yeah. And because you don't want to accuse someone or let evidence be known unless there's enough for guilt. I mean, yeah. people get investigated who aren't guilty. We find out that there's exculpatory evidence. And you can't ruin a person's reputation. You shouldn't. And that's one of the um, very basic foundational rules of the Department of Justice is that you would never comment. That was the mistake that Comey made in saying, I'm investigating Hillary Clinton. I mean, mm-hmm. And the damage he did that. there. I, absolutely. That's, and it, it's, it's just wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I will never forgive him for that. That is a violation of every standard of professionalism. And it, it's just it's simply wrong. And so, yeah, you won't know until there's an indictment that names the evidence and sets forth the facts. And you shouldn't know. Jill, thank you so much for being here today. We are um, we are up against the clock. Uh, Appreciate Jill Weinbanks always being here. Author Watergate Girl. Um, That's going to do it for me. Uh, Patty Vasquez is next. Have a great weekend. I hope it's a three day weekend for you. But otherwise, I will see you Monday at 2 p.m. 2 p.m. Have a great weekend. Good night.